Chapter Twenty of the Curse of Carnes Hold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Curse of Carnes Hold by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Twenty. Cleared at last. Reginald Carn was laid down on the table in the gardener's cottage. The doctor could now examine him and whisper to the clergyman that both his legs were broken, and that he had no doubt whatever he had received terrible internal injuries. I don't think he will live till morning. Presently there was a knock at the door. Can I come in? Mr. Volks asked when the doctor opened it. I have known the poor fellow from the time he was a child. Is he sensible? He is sensible in a way the doctor said that is i believe he knows perfectly well what we are saying but he has several times laughed that strange cunning laugh that is most peculiar to the insane well at any rate i will speak to him said mr volks do you know me reginald he went on in a clear voice as he came up to the side of the table reginald Carne nodded and again a low mocking laugh came from his lips you thought you were very clever volks mighty clever but i tricked you "'You tricked me, did you?' the magistrate said cheerfully. "'How did you trick me?' "'You thought, and they all thought, the dull-headed fools, "'that Ronald Mervyn killed Margaret. "'Ho, ho, I cheated you all nicely.' "'A glance of surprise passed between his listeners. "'Mr. Volks signed to the others not to speak, and then went on. "'So he did, Reginald, so he did, though we couldn't prove it. "'You did not trick us there.' "'I did,' Reginald Carne said angrily. I killed her myself. An exclamation of horror broke from the three listeners. Mr. Volks was the first to recover himself. Nonsense, Reginald, you are dreaming. I am not, he said vehemently. I had thought it all out over and over again. I was always thinking of it. I wanted to put an end to this curse. It's been going on too long, and it troubled me. I had made up my mind to kill her long before. "'but I might not have done it when I did "'if I had not heard Ronald threatening her, "'and another man heard it too. "'This was a great opportunity, you see. "'It was as much as I could do to sit quietly at dinner "'with that naval fellow, and to know that it was all right. "'It was glorious, for it would be killing two birds with one stone. "'I wanted to get rid of Ronald as much as I did of her, "'so that the curse might come to an end, "'and now it was all so easy.' I only had to drop the glove he had left behind him on the grass close below her window, and after that quarrel he would be suspected and hung. Nothing could have worked better for me. And then, too, I thought it would puzzle them to give them another scent to work on. There was another man had a grudge against Margaret. That was Forrester, the poacher. I had picked up his knife in the wood just where he had killed my keeper, and afterwards I heard him telling his sweetheart, who was Margaret's maid, that he would kill Margaret for persuading her to give him up. So I dropped the knife by the side of the bed, and I thought that one or other of them would be sure to be hung. But somehow that didn't come right. I believed the girl hid the knife, only I didn't dare question her about it. But that didn't matter. The fellow would be hung one way or the other for killing my keeper. But the other was a glorious thing, and I chuckled over it. It was hard to look calm and grave when I was giving evidence against Ronald, and when all the fools were thinking that he did it, 
when it was me all the time. Didn't I do it cleverly, Volks? I hid her things where the gardener was sure to find them the first time he dug up the bed. They let Ronald off, but he will not come back again, and I don't suppose he will ever marry. So there is an end of the curse as far as he's concerned. Then I waited a bit, but the devil was always at my elbow, telling me to finish the good work, and last night I did it. I put the candle to the curtains in all the rooms downstairs, and stood and watched them blaze up until it got too hot to stay any longer. It was a grand sight, and I could hear the Spanish woman laughing and shouting. She has had her way with us for a long time, but now it's all over. The curse of Carnes is played out. There, didn't I treat you nicely, folks, you and all the others? You never suspected me, not one of you. I used to keep grave all day, but at night when I was in my room alone, I laughed for hours to think of all the dogs on the wrong scent. His three listeners looked at each other silently. It was a grand thing to put an end to the curse, Reginald Carne rambled on. It was no pain to her, and if she had lived, the trouble would have come upon her children. "'You know that you are hurt beyond chance of recovery, Khan. the magistrate said gravely. "'It is a terrible story that you have told us. "'I think that you ought to put it down on paper, "'so that other people may know how it was done, "'because, you see, at present an innocent man is suspected. "'What do I care? "'That is nothing to me one way or the other. "'I am glad I have succeeded in frightening Ronald Mervyn away, "'and I hope he will never come back. "'You don't suppose I am going to help to bring him home?' Mr. Volk saw that he had made a mistake. "'Yes, I quite understand you don't want him back,' he said soothingly. "'I thought perhaps that you would like people to know how you had sacrificed yourself to put an end to the curse, and how cleverly you had managed to deceive everyone. People would never believe us if we were to tell them. They would say either that you did not know what you were talking about, or that it was empty boasting on your part.' "'They may think what they like,' he said sullenly. It is nothing to me what they think. There was a change in the tone of his voice that caused the doctor to put his hand on his wrist again. Let me give you a few drops more of brandy, Khan. No, I will not, said the dying man. I suppose you want to keep me alive to get some more out of me, but you won't. I won't speak again. The others held a whispered conversation in the corner. He is going fast, the doctor said. It is a marvel that his voice is as strong as it is. He certainly won't live until morning. It is likely he may die within an hour. I will ask him another question or two, Mr. Volks said. If we could but get something to corroborate his story, it would be invaluable. But Reginald Kahn spoke no more. He heard what was said to him, for he laughed the same malicious laugh that had thrilled the crowd as he stood on the parapet. But it was low and feeble now, in hopes that he might yet change his mind, Mr. Volks and the clergyman remained with Dr. Arrowsmith for another hour. At the end of that time, Reginald Kahn startled them by speaking again clearly and distinctly. "'I tell you, it's all over, you witch. You have done us harm enough, but I have beaten you. It was you against me, and I have won. There is nothing more for you to do here, and you can go to your place. Kahn's hold is down, and the curse is broken.' As he ceased speaking, the doctor moved quietly up to the side of the stretcher, put his finger on his wrist, and stood there for a minute. Then he bent down and listened. "'He is gone,' he said. "'The poor fellow is dead.' 
the three gentlemen went outside the cottage some of the people were standing near waiting for news of reginald Carne's state mr Carne has just died the doctor said as he went up to them will one of you find mrs wilson and tell her to bring another woman with her and see to him in the morning i will make arrangements to have him taken down to the village what do you think we had better do about this dr arrowsmith mr Boggs asked as he rejoined them do you believe this story unquestionably i do the doctor replied i believe every word of it but the man was mad doctor yes he was mad and has been so for a long time in my opinion but that makes no difference whatever in my confidence that he was speaking truly confessions of this kind from a madman are generally true their cunning is prodigious and as long as they wish to conceal a fact it is next to impossible to get it from them but when as in the present case they are proud of their cleverness and of the success with which they have fooled other people they will tell everything you see their ideas of right and wrong are entirely upset the real lunatic is unconscious of having committed a crime and is inclined even to glory in it i wish we could have got him to sign the magistrate said i am sure he could not have held the pen dr arrowsmith replied i will certify to that effect and as we three all heard the confession i think that if you draw it out and we sign it as witnesses it will have just as good an effect as if he had written it himself there was one part doctor that surprised me even more than the rest that was the part relating to the man forrester i don't believe a soul suspected him of being in any way connected with the crime at least we heard nothing of a knife being found nor of course of the quarrel between forrester and the girl ruth powlett was it not no that is all new to us the doctor said i think the best way would be to see her in the morning she may not like to confess that she concealed the knife if she did so of course if she does it will be an invaluable confirmation of his story and will show conclusively that his confession was not a mere delusion of a madman's brain yes indeed the doctor agreed that would clench the matter altogether and i am almost certain that you will find that what he has said is true the girl was in my hands a short time before miss Carne's death they said she had had a fall but to my mind it seemed more like a severe mental shock then after miss Carne's death she was very ill again and there was something about her that puzzled me a good deal for instance she insisted upon remaining in court until a verdict was given and that at a time when she was so ill she could scarcely stand she was so obstinate over the matter that it completely puzzled me but if what Carn said was true and she had the knowledge of something that would have gone very far to prove ronald mervyn's innocence the matter is explained the only difficulty before us is to get her to speak because of course she cannot do so without laying herself open to a charge i don't mean a criminal charge but a moral one of having suppressed evidence in a manner that concerned a man's life i think the best plan will be for us to meet at your house mr Vokes, at eleven o'clock to-morrow i will go into the village before that and will bring ruth powlett up in my jig and if you will allow me i will do the talking to her i have had her a good deal in my hands for the last year and i think she has confidence in me and will perhaps answer me more freely than she would you as a magistrate very likely she would doctor let the arrangement stand as you propose the next morning at half-past ten dr arrowsmith drove up in his jig to the mill 
Ruth came to the door. Ruth, he said, I want you to put on your bonnet and shawl and let me drive you a short distance. I have something particular that I want to talk to you about, and I want to have you to myself for a bit. A good deal surprised, Ruth went into the house and reappeared in two or three minutes warmly wrapped up. That's right, the doctor said. Jump in. Ruth Powlett was the first to speak. I suppose it is true, sir, that poor Mr. Carne is dead. Yes, he died at two o'clock. Ruth, I have a curious thing to tell you about him, but I will wait until we get through the village. I have no doubt that it will surprise you as much as it surprised me. Ruth said nothing until they had crossed the bridge over the dare. What is it? she asked at last. Well, Ruth, at present it is only known to Mr. Vickery, Mr. Volks, and myself. And whatever happens, I want you to say nothing about it until I give you leave. Now, Ruth, I have some sort of idea that what I am going to tell you will relieve your mind of a burden. Ruth turned pale. Relieve my mind, sir? she repeated. Yes, Ruth, I may be wrong, and if I am, I can only say beforehand that I am sorry, but I have an idea that you suspect, and have for a long time suspected, that George Forrester murdered Miss Carne. Ruth did not speak, but looking down, the doctor saw by the pallor of her cheeks and the expression of her face that his supposition was correct. I think, Ruth, that has been your idea. If so, I can relieve your mind. Mr. Kahn, before his death, confessed that he murdered his sister. Ruth gave a start and a cry. She reeled in her seat and would have fallen had not the doctor thrown his arm round her. Steady, my child, steady, he said. This is a surprise to you, I have no doubt, and, whatever it is to others, probably a joyful one. Ruth broke into a violent fit of sobbing. The doctor did not attempt to check her, but when she gradually recovered, he said, that is strange news, is it not, Ruth? But did he mean it, sir? she asked. Did he know what he was saying when he said so? He knew perfectly well, Ruth. He told us a long story, but I will not tell you what it is now. We shall be at Mr. Volks's in a minute, and we shall find Mr. Vickery there, and I want you to tell us what you know about it before you hear what Mr. Kahn's story was. I do hope that you will tell us everything you know. Only in that way can we clear Captain Mervyn. I will tell you everything I know, sir, Ruth said quietly. I told Miss Armstrong five weeks ago, and was only waiting till she heard from someone she had written to before telling it to everyone. The jig now drew up at the door of the magistrate's house, and Dr. Arrowsmith led Ruth into the sitting-room, where Mr. Volks and the clergyman were waiting for her. "'Sit down here, Ruth,' the doctor said, handing her a chair. "'Now, gentlemen, I may first tell you that I have told Miss Powlett that Mr. Kahn has confessed that he killed his sister. I have not told her a single word more. It was, of course, of the highest importance that she should not know the nature of his story before telling you her own. She has expressed her willingness to tell you all she knows. Now, Miss Powlett, will you please begin in your own way?' Quietly and steadily, Ruth Powlett told her story, beginning with the conversation that she had had with Margaret Kahn relative to her breaking off the engagement. She described her interview with George Forrester, his threats against Miss Kahn, and his attack on herself. 
and then told how she had found his knife by the bedside on the morning of the murder. She said she knew now that she had done very wrong to conceal it, but that she had done it for the sake of George Forrester's father. Lastly, she told how she had gone to the trial, taking the knife with her, firmly resolved that in case a verdict of guilty should be returned against Captain Mervyn, she would come forward, produce the knife, and tell all that she knew. Her three hearers exchanged many looks of satisfaction as she went on. When she had finished, Mr. Volk said, "'We are very much obliged to you for your story, Miss Powlett. Happily, it agrees precisely with that told us by Mr. Carne. It seems that he was in the wood and overheard your quarrel with Forrester, and the threats against Miss Carne suggested to him the idea of throwing the blame upon Forrester. And to do this he placed the knife that he had found on the scene of the poaching affray a short time before, in his sister's room. After this confirmation given by your story, there can be no doubt at all that Mr. Carne's confession was genuine, and that it will completely clear Captain Mervyn of the suspicion of having caused his cousin's death. We shall be obliged, I am afraid, to make your story public also, in order to confirm his statement. This will naturally cause you pain and some unpleasantness, and I hope you will accept that as the inevitable consequence of the course, which you yourself see has been a very mistaken one, you pursued in this affair. I am prepared for that, sir, Ruth said quietly. I had already told Miss Armstrong about it, and was ready to come here to tell you the story, even when I thought that by so doing I should have to denounce George Forrester as a murderer. I am so rejoiced that he is now proved to be innocent, I can very well bear what may be said about me. But why not have come and told me at once when you made up your mind to do so? Mr. Volks asked. Why delay it? I was waiting, sir. I was waiting, but— And she paused. That secret is not my own. But I think, sir, that if you will go to Mr. Armstrong— he will be able to tell you something you will be glad to know. Who is Mr. Armstrong? Mr. Volks asked in some surprise. He is a gentleman who has been living in the village for the last four or five months, sir. I do not think there can be any harm in my telling you that he knows where Captain Mervyn is to be found. That is the very information we want at present. We must get Ronald Mervyn back among us as soon as we can. He has indeed been very hardly treated in the matter. I think, Miss Powlett, we will get you to put your story into the form of a sworn information. We may as well draw it up at once, and that will save you the trouble of coming up here again. This was accordingly done, and Ruth Powlett walked back to the village, leaving Mr. Volks and the two other gentlemen to draw up a formal report of the confession made by Reginald Carne. Ruth Powlett went straight to the cottage occupied by the Armstrongs. "'What is your news, Ruth?' Mary said, as she entered. "'I can see by your face that you have something important to tell us.' "'I have indeed,' Ruth replied. "'I have just been up to Mr. Volks, the magistrate, and have told him all I knew.' "'What induced you to do that, Ruth?' Mary asked, in surprise. "'I thought you had quite settled to say nothing about it until we heard from Captain Mervyn.' "'They knew all about it before I told them, and only sent for me to confirm the story.' Mr. Kahn, before he died last night, made a full confession before Mr. Volks, Dr. Arrowsmith, and Mr. Vickery. It was he who, in his madness, killed his sister, and who placed George Forrester's knife by the bedside, and Captain Mervyn's glove on the grass, to throw suspicion on them. 
Captain Mervyn and George Forrester are both innocent. The news was so sudden and unexpected that it was some time before Mary Armstrong could sufficiently recover herself to ask questions. The news that Ronald was proved to be innocent was not so startling as it would have been had she not previously believed that they were already in a position to clear him. But the knowledge that his innocence would now be publicly proclaimed in a day or two filled her with happiness. She was glad, too, for Ruth's sake, that George Forrester had not committed this terrible crime, and yet there was a slight feeling of disappointment that she herself had had no hand in clearing her lover, and that this had come about in an entirely different way to what she had expected. Mr. Volks and the clergyman called that afternoon and had a long talk with Mr. Armstrong, and the following day a thrill of excitement was caused throughout the country by the publication in the papers of the confession of Reginald Kahn. Dr. Arrowsmith certified that, although Reginald Kahn was unquestionably insane, and probably had been so for some years, he had no hesitation in saying that he was perfectly conscious at the time he made the confession, and that the statement might be believed as implicitly as if made by a wholly sane man. In addition to this certificate and the confession, the three gentlemen signed a joint declaration to the effect that the narrative was absolutely confirmed by other facts, especially by the statement made by Miss Powlett, without her being in any way aware of the confession of Reginald Kahn. This, they pointed out, fully confirmed his story on all points, and could leave no shadow of doubt in the minds of any one that Reginald Kahn had, under the influence of madness, taken his sister's life, and had then, with the cunning so commonly present in insanity, thrown suspicion on two wholly innocent persons. The newspapers, commenting on the story, remarked strongly upon the cruel injustice that had been inflicted upon Captain Mervyn, and expressed the hope that he would soon return to take his place again in the county, uniting in his person the estate of the Mervyns and the Carnes. There were some expressions of strong reprobation at the concealment by Ruth Powlett of the knife she had found in Miss Carne's room. One of the papers, however, admitted that perhaps altogether it is fortunate now that the girl concealed them. Had the facts now been published and her statement been given, they would at once have convinced everyone that Captain Mervyn did not commit the crime with which he was charged, but at the same time they might have brought another innocent man to the scaffold. Upon the whole, then, although her conduct in concealing this important news is most reprehensible, it must be admitted that, in the interests of justice, it is fortunate she kept silent. The sensation caused in Carnesford by the publication of this news was tremendous. Fortunately, Ruth Powlett was not there to become the centre of talk, for she had that morning been carried off by Mr. Armstrong and Mary to stay with them for a while in London. The cottage was shut up, and upon the following day a cart arrived from Plymouth to carry off the furniture, which had been only hired by the month. The evening before leaving, Mr. Armstrong had intercepted Hiram Powlett on his way to the snuggery, and taking him up to the cottage where Ruth was spending the evening with Mary, informed him on the way of the strange discovery that had been made and Ruth's share in it. "'I trust, Mr. Powlett,' he said, "'that you will not be angry with your daughter. She was placed in a terrible position, having the option of either denouncing as a murderer a man she had loved,' or permitting another to lie under the imputation of guilt. And you must remember that she was prepared to come forward at the trial, and tell the truth about the matter had Captain Mervyn been found guilty. No doubt she acted wrongly, 
but she has suffered terribly, and I think that as my daughter has forgiven her for allowing Captain Mervyn to suffer for her silence, you may also do so. Hiram Powlett had uttered many expressions of surprise and concern as he listened to the story. It seemed to him very terrible that his girl should have all the time been keeping a secret of such vital importance. He now said, in a tone of surprise, "'I don't understand you, Mr. Armstrong, about your daughter. "'What has Miss Mary to do with forgiving? "'How has she been injured?' "'I don't know that upon the whole she has been injured,' Mr. Armstrong said. "'At least I am sure she does not consider so. "'Still, I think she has something to forgive, "'for the fact is she is engaged to be married to Captain Mervyn, "'and would have been his wife a year ago, "'had he not been resolved never to marry "'so long as this cloud remained over him.' Hiram Powlett was so greatly surprised at this news that his thoughts were at a moment diverted from Ruth's misdemeanours. Captain Mervyn, the owner of the hall, and now of the Carne estate also, was a very great man in the eyes of the people of Carnesford, and the news that he was engaged to be married to the girl who was a friend of his daughter's, and who had several times taken tea at the mill, was almost bewildering to him. "'I dare say you are surprised,' Mr. Armstrong said quietly. "'But you see, we are not exactly what we appear. "'We came here somewhat under false colours "'to try and find out about this murder, "'and in the hope we might discover some proofs "'of Captain Mervyn's innocence. "'Now we have been successful, "'we shall go up to London "'and there await Captain Mervyn's return. "'I have been talking it over with my daughter, "'and if you and Mrs. Powlett offer no opposition, "'we propose to take Ruth away "'to stay with us for two or three months. "'It will be pleasant for all parties.' Your girl and mine are fond of each other, and Ruth will be a nice companion for Mary. The change will do your daughter good. She has for a long time been suffering greatly, and fresh scenes and objects of interest will take her mind off the past. And lastly, by the time she returns here, the gossip and talk that will arise when all this is known will have died away. It is very good of you to think of it, Mr. Armstrong, Hiram Powlett said, and it will be a fine thing for Ruth, of course she has been wrong very wrong but she must have suffered very much all these months i told you i thought she had something on her mind but i never thought it was like this well well i shan't say anything to her i never was good at scolding her when she was a child and i think she has been severely punished for this already i think so too mr armstrong agreed and now let us go in i told her that i should speak to you this evening and she must be waiting anxiously for you when they entered, Ruth rose timidly. "'Oh, father,' she began. "'There, don't say any more about it, Ruth,' Hiram interrupted, taking her tenderly in his arms. "'My poor girl, you have had a hard time of it. Why didn't you tell me at first? "'I could not, father,' she sobbed. "'You know, you know how you were set against him.' "'Well, that is so, Ruth, and I should have been still more set against him if I had known the rights of that fall of yours upon the hill.' "'But there, we won't say anything more about it. "'You have been punished for your fault, child, "'and I hope that when you come back again to us "'from the jaunt that Mr. Armstrong is going to be good enough to take you, "'you will be just as you were before all this trouble came upon you.' "'And so the next morning Mr. Armstrong, his daughter, and Ruth went up to London. Two months later Mary received Ronald's letter, "'telling of George Forrester's death, and of his own disappointment of finding his hopes of clearing himself dashed to the ground. Mary broke the news of Forrester's death to Ruth. 
she received it quietly i am sorry she said but he has been nothing to me for a long time now and he could never have been anything to me again i am sorry she repeated wiping her eyes that the boy i played with is gone but for the man i think it is perhaps better so he died fighting bravely and as a soldier should i fear he would never have made a good man had he lived a month later ronald himself returned the war was virtually over when he received the letters from mary armstrong and mr volks telling him that he was cleared at last and he had no trouble in obtaining his discharge at once he received the heartiest congratulations from his former officers and a perfect ovation from the men as he said good-bye to them at plymouth he received letters telling him where mary and her father were staying in london and on landing he at once proceeded to town by train after telegraphing to his sisters to meet him there a fortnight later a quiet wedding took place ronald's sisters and ruth powlett acting as bridesmaids an honour that when ruth returned home immediately after the ceremony effectually silenced the tongues of the village gossips ronald mervyn and his wife went for a month's tour on the continent mr armstrong joining them in paris a few days after the marriage while the miss mervyns went down to devonshire to prepare the hall for the reception of its owner colonel somerset had not forgotten his promise and two or three days after ronald's return the letter stating how captain mervyn had distinguished himself during the kaffir war under the name of sergeant blunt went the round of the papers the skeleton walls of Carnes hold were at once pulled down the garden was rooted up and the whole site planted with trees and this was by ronald's orders carried out so expeditiously that when he returned with his bride all trace of the hold had vanished never in the memory of south devonshire had there been such rejoicings as those that greeted ronald mervyn and his wife on their return home the tenantry of his two estates now joined all assembled at the station and scarce a man from carnesford was absent triumphal arches had been erected and the gentry from many miles round drove in to receive them as an expression at once of their satisfaction that ronald mervyn had been cleared from the cloud that hung over him and to some extent of their regret that they should ever for a moment have believed him guilty reuben claphurst's prediction was verified with the destruction of Carne's hold the curse of the spanish lady ceased to work and no trace of the family scourge has ever shown itself in the blood of the somewhat numerous family of ronald mervyn the tragic story is now almost forgotten and it is only among the inhabitants of the village at the foot of the hill that the story of the curse of Carne's hold is sometimes related end of chapter twenty end of the curse of Carne's hold by george alfred henty